Hey, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Lift Big, Eat Big's new workout program, The Phalanx Method. Coach, powerlifter, strongman, and historian Brandon Morrison took a unique approach in his creation to this three-block, six-month-long effort. Using ancient sources and modern techniques, he was able to recreate the training of one of history's most destructive military forces, the phalanx. And that's not just the sales line either. This is only three days a week in the gym, and it's brutal. I've uh, competed in powerlifting, CrossFit, and spent way too much time doing brutal army PT. And this is the hardest thing I've ever done before. And uh, you can do it at a commercial gym or like me from your garage. Uh, he also includes little historical tidbits every week to keep you interested and to keep you hooked. If you want to challenge yourself or just try something new, go to www.liftbigeatbig.com and enter the promo code donkey to get 15% off the Phalanx method. Are you ready to become a warrior of oak and bronze? Good evening from Baghdad. One of the world's oldest cities has become one of the world's newest power centers. As soon as major hostilities broke out between the two oil producers, Iraq and Iran, we came here to Baghdad to watch OPEC at war, to look in particular at a regime seeking supremacy in the Gulf, and at its remarkable president, Saddam Hussein, one of the least known but most effective rulers in the Middle East. As the conflict between his country and Iran got underway earlier this year, it was Saddam Hussein who declared, whoever climbs over our fence, we shall climb over his roof. Hello, and uh, welcome to another episode of Lions Led by Donkeys. Joining me today in the studio for like only the second person we've ever had in here is Tom. Yeah, it's good to be here. I decided, you know, I was up in Seattle for a long weekend. I decided to come by to visit stately Kasabian Manor. Yeah. Joe's kind enough to have me on the podcast. My weird dungeon-esque podcast room. Yeah. I mean, I, I like what you've done in the place. It's kind of concerning. I'm worried about the chains hanging from the ceiling, yeah. but I didn't want to say anything about Don't it. Don't kink shame me, Tom. Hey, whatever makes you happy. <laughs> Uh, so today is uh, part four of the Iran-Iraq war. So unless you're weird and you want to start at part four, I recommend going back and listening to part one through three. Um, and last time we ended with the Iraqi forces dug in at their southern border and the Iranians posed to go on the offensive into Iraq for the first time. Uh, now I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that there is a fair number of people in the Iranian government who do not actually want to invade Iraq. Um, they were trying to take like the moral high road. Like because uh, Iraq invaded first and then they they turn into some popular struggle of uh, collective self-defense. And um, now they're on the offense. Now, they, you know, now they're trying to invade them and it, it made them look bad uh, morally. Um, but the Ayatollah's whole thing was he wanted to spread the revolution. Well, now he's got Iraq on the back foot and he can spread the revolution by force. And uh, he controls everything anyway. So nobody's opinion really matters. <laughs> Just the illusion of trying to be on the moral high ground. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the Ayatollah is still the Ayatollah. Like, I understand you're prime minister, but you do know that's a useless post with no powers, right? <laughs> OK, take it. Take a knee there, chief. Yep. Um, these individuals were actually backed by Iranian army officers, uh, which is pretty bold since their own government fucking hated them. Um, and they were pragmatic about it. They're like, our army cannot 
sustain the offensive. Yeah, it's crazy that you might <laughs> want a little bit of experience in your army when you're actually trying to involve, you know, engage in complex maneuvers. Yeah, or, or like supplies. Like <laughs> they didn't have they they barely had ammo for like artillery barrages. Like yeah. we can't invade. They're dug in with defense and depth strategies. And uh, but the pro war voices were the Ayatollah himself, which means you're boned, and legions of the Revolutionary <laughs> Guard who are absolutely down for some revenge. Um, the whole installing a. Islamic public of Iraq thing that they've been pre- uh, preaching about since before the war. Um, they actually began a saying uh, of the road through to Jerusalem passes through Karbala uh, became popular in revolutionary circles, meaning right. of course that the conquering of Iraq to spread the revolution through the region, ultimately to seize one of Islam's most holy cities in the grips of those damned Israelis. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, so it, it would mean, it means to an end. It's a very long t-shirt slogan though. I don't know if they could really pull that off. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you ever look at their posters, they're pretty long winded and <laughs> involved. It's like a weird airbrushing T-shirts from the 80s, <laughs> except it's like all of their political banners and yeah. stuff. All of them have some like weird, shitty uh, picture of some martyr on them that is only half spray painted on correctly. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Iranian army or mostly the Revolutionary Guard, but we're just a little high in all their victories in Iran. Um, so <laughs> yeah. a tiny bit. Yeah, and by all by all means, if they would have listened to any of their military officers for the first time of the war, they yeah. would have known better. Mm-hmm. Um, and their plan was to surround and destroy the entire Iraqi Three Corps while taking over the city of Basra, the third largest city in Iraq. Uh, the original plan was to storm through Iraq and seize the capital, ending the war. Of course, you'd think. Easy. I mean. Good thing nobody's ever thought that before. That's it's a bold strategy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the reality then set in when everybody realized they didn't have the supplies, weapons, vehicles, or logistical capabilities to do that. Yeah, but they had the spirit. Yeah. They, they, they have that thirst for glorious martyrdom. <laughs> um, so they settled on simply taking Basra and waiting for the Shia to rise up against their oppressors after watching the glorious legions of the Revolutionary Guard liberate them, which is... It should sound familiar because it's literally the exact same fucking plan as the Iraqi invasion. Um, the Iraqi plan for invasion was to go in, seize uh, Khuzestan, and then uh, just assume the government would fall apart. And it worked great. It worked, it worked magnificently. Um, like I said, this entire game is like, like this entire war is a chess game being played by two fucking idiots who only know how to play checkers. <laughs> and it, 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 it it's astounding to me. I, I've said like probably a dozen times now, neither side ever learns from history because they end up fucking cosplaying the Western front of World War One here in a little bit. Um, but like. At least that's like that's a hundred years ago today, really. Yeah. Um, so I, I could get them not cracking their history books. I mean, they did just purge all their intellectuals. So, mm-hmm. um, but they couldn't even remember two years ago when Iraq invaded. <laughs> uh, so on June thirteenth, nineteen eighty two. 200,000 Iranian troops stormed over their border. In true 20th century Western Front fashion, it was uh, preluded by two days of heavy artillery bombardment. And almost exactly like the Western Front, the bombardment did nothing. Um, while the Iranians were debating whether to invade or not, the Iraqis have been digging themselves in pretty well. Uh, they constructed con- concrete reinforced bunkers, trenches, and earthworks stretching back miles. And uh, when they ran out of building supplies, they would just dig in a whole tank. <laughs> Um, which is actually the the Iraqis did significantly better uh, using their tanks as pillboxes effectively, yeah. uh, because whenever they try to maneuver them, they get all fucked up and get slaughtered. <laughs> um, Saddam also doubled the Iraqi army through conscript- conscription to around a half million men. Almost all of them are on the border uh, like they had done previously. Iranian volunteers, most of them child soldiers, uh, stormed through the uh, many fucking miles of uh, landmines that the mm-hmm. Iraqis had dug in and cleared them with their own bodies. Oh, God. Um, 
This time, though, they had several other volunteers dressed up as Imam Hussein. Um, I actually was not familiar with who who Imam um, Hussein is because uh, my Islamic history is a little rusty. Uh, he's the grandson of Prophet Muhammad and a hero of the legendary historical battle of Karbala. Uh, the fake Imams would mount white horses and charge into battle to galvanize the volunteers to follow them into the warm embrace of martyrdom. They're normally only armed with a flag. So let me get this straight. The Iranian plan was to have cosplayers yes. inspire their soldiers yes. riding in the battle unarmed. On horseback. On horseback. <laughs> yes. And it ended well, I assume. Uh, it took three days of constant assaults for the Iranians to finally overrun the first Iraqi positions. Oh, good. Uh, during the battle, the combatants would get so close to one another that Iranian soldiers could actually climb on top of Iraqi tanks and throw grenades in. That's absolutely <laughs> insane. So it was just like dismounted infantry charging across yeah. minefields and attacking in place dug in concrete yes. uh, defenses with Iraqi tanks that are dug in. Yep. That is amazing. Yeah. And the Iranians got over their just incredible lack of heavy weaponry by waves of waves of people. (laughs) Uh, Their air force is pretty solid. I mean, at this point, they pretty much have air superiority, but the concept of close air support is still distant to them. So they hadn't thought to use their air superiority to their advantage during this offensive. Not directly in battlefields. They Uh normally would only use their uh, air superiority to bomb Iraqi uh, like infrastructure. And that was working really well. Uh, They were Iraqi economy would have completely collapsed if it wasn't for Western support. Okay. Um, they had no functioning arms manufacturing anymore. Their oil uh, output was ceased to a trickle. Um, but good old Uncle Sam kept them afloat. Thank God for that. Yeah. Like a billion dollars a month, I think, at some point. We were uh, giving them. Drop in the bucket. Yeah. It was, it, it was technically for quote unquote farm aid and oh, agricultural yeah. aid. Um, but what they, they actually were, were, um, Thousands of tons of pesticides that <laughs> Iraq would use to make chemical weapons. Oh, good God. <laughs> um, actually, did you ever watch the Chappelle show? Yeah. Uh, do you remember um, uh, they had a guy uh, known uh, fuck, uh, Paul Mooney? He dressed yeah. up as Negro Damas. Oh, yeah. And somebody asked how the United States knew that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. He's like, they kept the receipts. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's where I came from. Yeah. Oh, um, man. And uh, the Iranian army would actually go on to push nine miles in, which is a really good day if this is 1918. Yeah. yeah. Um, but since it was 1983, the Iraqis <laughs> immediately began to push them back with helicopters and airstrikes. Oh, God. Um, they also began to pour chemical weapon shells and bombs into the massive Iranian troops. Um, like before, the Iranians still really did not have any chemical countermeasures. And I know I talked about before uh, that Iraqi chemical weapons weren't that good at mm-hmm. first. Like t- somebody told me it's like 20% lethality. Yeah. Um, this point in the war, it's almost 50%. Jeez. Uh, it would eventually go up to 80% wow. lethality as they uh, worked on their mixture. Made, or, made better uh, use of the, the farm equipment from the United States. That's right. Um, so it, it did a lot. And also for st- some strange reason, uh, the Iranians had been getting dosed with mustard and tobin and sarin gas for for years now um but they actually routed uh an entire iranian division by bombing them with tear gas holy (laughs) i mean non-lethal tear gas i mean you know you and i have both experienced the joys that is cs gas it sucks sucks. like they're like you know that i don't know one in 20 in the one in 20 people in the population that aren't affected by cs gas and everybody hates them in the gas chamber but that's right i mean my experience is just horrifying in the gas chamber like my brain shut down and i stopped functioning as a human being. It's just 
nothing but tears and snot. It just fucks my soul. Yeah. Like uh, it, I, I hated everybody and I was the youngest one and I was uh, a platoon guide when I was in basic training. So they made me stay in there <laughs> as my entire platoon went through oh, doing God. jumping jacks and the hacking up lungs and shit. It was Jeez. awful. I mean, I, but that was in an enclosed space. I've never uh-huh. been, I've never been tear gassed in an open space before. Imagine it dissipates pretty fast, but I mean, uh, th- there's a good chance they probably thought they got mustard gassed and, yeah. and they're running for it. I mean, a whole division getting routed by CS gas yeah. is amazing. Still think. I mean, it, it definitely affects you, but to the degree that a whole division routed, yeah, I think you're right. They probably did think it was something worse. And I mean, if I'm getting hit by gas, I'm getting the hell out of there. No Especially if what. Iraq is chucking gas at you, you're going to assume it's going to melt your skin off. And, yeah, exactly. And make you drown in your own lung that, juices. Yeah. yeah, the lovely imagery that yeah. is. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, and it's it's something that kind of goes back through all of chemical weapons history. I mean, yeah, they they hurt thousands of people, mm-hmm. but the main weapon at use there is is fear yeah you incapacitate a lot more people than you actually hurt or kill i mean the whole point of it is you know uh, now you use chemical weapons the the idea is the enemy has to put on all of this gear that restricts their ability to move unfortunately the iranians didn't have that so it was mostly just having their skin melt off in front of them yeah and actually uh in the last episode we talked a little bit about a video that the iranians made uh where they did put on something resembling a chemical suit Uh to fuck with a mustard gas shell that they dug up. Um, so they don't have a great grasp on the concept of chemical weapons, mm-hmm. which is pretty clear because um, the shells are loaded up with a liquid, which then turns to gas when it's introduced to oxygen. Yeah. Um, so they put on at most a, a mask um, and they're wearing regular uniforms outside of that. Uh, well, mustard gas is a blister agent. Yeah. You don't have to breathe it in. And uh, so they unscrew the the shell and then pour out the liquid into what looks like a mason jar. <laughs> so as soon as they pour it out, it immediately starts turning to gas and fucking everybody up. Uh, the only thing they use for protection is what looks like kitchen gloves. And they just dump it all over each other on accident, too. It's well, it's not good. As long as they had gloves and eye pro, that's what mattered. Yeah, ready to mow the lawn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so through all those... Um, chemical weapons and the counterattack at the end of the day, the Iranians only had a two mile chunk of the front left in true Western front uh, fashion. Um, the second massive push by the Iranians uh, using the same tactics as before managed to get within eight miles of the target city of Basra. And that's as far as they would go. Uh, the Iranians <laughs> finally burned through their supplies, including ammo. And once again, were pushed all the way back to where they started. It, it, it's funny. It's almost like, this whole war would be different if people actually listened to their military commanders. Yeah, two straight offensives that led to a net gain of zero. Yeah. I mean, so like the Iranians during these offensives, were the, was it just strictly light infantry or did they have vehicles? Or? They have some vehicles, but they try not to use them. Like uh, they try to use their tanks very sparingly because unlike the Iraqis, they will not be replaced. Uh-huh. Um, really, the only backer that they had during this war is Syria. Oh. And the only thing Syria really did is shut off a oil pipeline to Iraq so they couldn't export their oil. So slightly annoyed the Iraqis, yeah. really. Okay. Um, I mean, eventually Iran would have a different backer in the form of the United States through the Iran-Contra scandal, but that's something we'll talk about later. Um, <laughs> at no point were they getting resupplied as heavily as Iraq was ever. Uh, so it, it, they have they got a lot of pickup trucks. Yeah. So they use those. Um, oh, the classic Toyota Hilux rolling yeah, around. Yeah, and uh, I mean they had a lot of T fifty fives. But the, their only real strength that they had outside of wave after wave of screaming vo- <laughs> volunteer was their air force. Yeah, uh, which is interesting because they won using American trained pilots 
in American Jets. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it's been said before, but like uh, during the huge officer purge post-revolution, um, because the military was always seen as like the Shah's backer. They're yeah. the ones that kept him in power for a long time. Um, one of the major thing they purged, maybe, I, I would assume it's an accident because it's weird to target this group of people, was chemical warfare officers. That is odd. So uh, they had no way to protect themselves when chemical weapons started getting thrown away. So basically anybody with any kind of experience in chemical weapons was purged. Yeah. That's kind of weird. I mean, mean, my experience with chem corps officers is you have a a strange mix of the guys that are super nerdy about chemical stuff and really like legitimately enjoy chemistry and things. And then you have the people that just like... for lack of a better word, morons who got stuck in the chem core. Right. And they don't really know what they're doing and, and they are not performing well. So I don't know if the Iranian chem core was similar, but regardless, they killed off one of their main sources of knowledge that could have helped right. them in a war against the Iraqis who had chemical weapons and were using them. A lot of them. Yeah. And I mean, their purge just affected the military in general to the point that like the military is afraid to say anything, yeah. which is why it's pretty surprising that they objected to an invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, but they actually would eventually get a time to shine and then quickly have it taken away from them. Um, uh, so what, after the Iranians finally burned through everything, uh, the only thing that saved them from total rout and destruction all the way back to the Iranian border was through heavy airstrikes. The Iraqis thought it was a good idea uh, that the Iranians stopped pretty convincingly. Uh, like they tried uh, and the Iraqis dug in a lot of their tanks. So they were effectively attacking back with helicopters and, mm-hmm. And uh, and light infantry as well, so they get eaten up pretty easily by yeah. the by the airstrikes, um, because their human wave attacks are only really good at penetrating one section of the line at a time, which isn't good when you're trying to invade an old country that's been turned into nothing but a defense and depth trench nightmare. Yeah, um, the Iraqis had three. Um, whole armor divisions parked behind the line, <laughs> uh, because they learned from fighting in Iran that. Our line gets penetrated in one place, and then the Iranians just kind of flood through that one area. Yeah. So they actually kept these three divisions in reserve, and whenever the Iranians would bust through a part of the line, they just pull the tanks up. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this would cost the Iranians twenty thousand casualties. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the those three divisions were chewed up pretty bad as well, yeah. but I mean, in comparison, not as bad. And the lines held, so clearly it worked. Mm-hmm. Um. And that's where the war would kind of stand for quite some time. Uh, after the destruction uh, the, of the operation, Iran would try and try again to breach Iraqi lines to try for that glorious push towards Basra and would fail each time. One of the biggest would be uh, called Operation Before the Dawn, where they would launch 200,000 reserve members of the Revolutionary Guard to attack along a 25-mile front, where they didn't succeed in pretty much anything other than getting torn apart by minefields. Um, and... Yeah, that, that's the thing is like the the Iranians never really let casualties slow them down. Yeah. Like at no point, like, my God, look at all these dead bodies. Like, <laughs> well, now the minefields are gone. So I just hunt the good stuff. You know, you just got to find the silver lining on things. And frankly, yeah. it inspires me. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he uh, like the, the Iranians really doubled down um, when when met with failure. Uh, the Iranians operate on the at first you don't succeed try try again school of Luigi Cadorna the patron saint <laughs> of our podcast uh, they launch Operation Dawn in the north of the country when virtually um, it ended the same as before uh, as before the dawn and then they would go on to launch 10 more 
Dawn operations <laughs> to virtually no effect. Luigi would be so proud. Yeah, he's smiling in his he's grave. Smiling, surrounded by the dead Italians yeah. that he sent to their graves. Uh, they would have uh, the same effect as before and lined up thousands of their own soldiers to like slowly run over them with a tank. It was like the same effect, like out of the beast. Have you ever seen the beast? Uh, it's on my list. It's like, I know it's one of the great tank movies, but I still oh, need yeah. to watch it. Oh, it's great. I would definitely be reviewing that for a fucking episode. Eventually. Um, it's impressive when you think about it. Like, I mean, you know, we make a big deal out of like China and Russia in yeah. terms of population differences between the United States and them. But like, you know, the days of the grand Armée in the 19th century, you know, Napoleon's armies were, France mobilized their entire population against the world and were able to conquer most of Europe. Yeah. Uh, there's a little bit different when there's a technological difference between conscripts that have to march towards lines of muskets versus yeah. conscripts charging across minefields, getting hit by chemical weapons, <laughs> charging against dug in tanks. Like, you know, just numerical advantage is not enough compared to training and experience and actual knowledge on simple things like tactics and logistics and strategy. Yeah. And you know, it's what's interesting is in comparison, the Iranians had better tactics Mm -hmm. um, when given the chance to use them when they weren't trying to breach trench lines, they actually had something resembling combined arms warfare, which the Iraqis did not have. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Iraqis would really only fight well in static defense. Uh, (laughs) Once they actually had to maneuver terrible. Yeah. Um, but the Iranians were hamstrung by the fact that the vast majority of their military was actually not a military. Yeah. There's still a whole bunch of dudes and jeans and right with rifles volunteers that yeah. are showing up and, you know, kind of the, that, uh, enemy at the gate scene where they hand out one rifle yeah. and the other guy has a clip of ammunition, you know, yeah. similar to that kind of thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Effectively. I mean, the, the only thing they did have thanks to the Shah was like an abundance of small arms, <laughs> but anything above like a machine gun that was rare and few mm-hmm. and far between. Um, so I would actually be remiss if I did if I just discarded all the Don operations as useless. Uh, some of them actually accomplished huge, if very temporary, victories uh, for the Iranians. One of those was Don Eight in '86. Um, the Ocho, <laughs> ESPN Eight, the Ocho. Uh, I, Iran invaded Iraq's Alpha province with a hundred thousand soldiers in an operation planned and carried out by officers um, that were like layers of contradictions. They were former Imperial Iranian officers who'd survived the purge and been trained by Americans prior to the fall of the Shah. Um, so I don't know how they managed to survive that. That's impressive. I yeah. mean, they were definitely targets of the revolution. I think they just stayed quiet until everybody realized that they needed them. <laughs> it was just, I need to survive long enough until they realize it might be valuable. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one bright spot that did occur during this time, however, was the Iranians did get some help. Uh, within Iraq, but it wasn't from their fellow Shia as they planned. It was the Kurds uh, because Kurdistan will take any chance to shoot at the Iraqi government they can get. Yeah. Um, this did not end in the victorious liberation of Kurdistan, however, uh, instead it just laid the groundwork for a horrible, horrible war crime later down the road, which we will talk about. Um, after all this, uh, Iran uh, knew they had to make changes within their army. Uh, Iraqi defense and depth tactics had effectively ground their human wave assaults uh, to being useless. Yeah. I mean, even when uh, Iraq had invaded Iran and the human wave attacks were like the new thing because the Iraqi army didn't know what the fuck to do with it. I mean, yeah. really nobody does like nobody knows how to react when like hordes of screaming people are coming at them with no regard for their own safety. Mm-hmm. Not many people re- react well to that. Um, and it worked really well because the Iraqi army wasn't dug in. They were still trying to maneuver, things like that. But once they came up, like cracked the history book and realized, oh, if we just put trenches behind one another, 
ends up pretty well. Yeah. Uh, so the Iranians knew they had to, um, they had to evolve and they, they actually, their casualties were com- becoming so high. They were running out of volunteers. So <laughs> that, you, that's a motivator. Yeah. Human wave attacks aren't inspiring for retention numbers yeah. and recruitment, especially when all the, the white horse riding heroes are fucking machine gunned. Yeah. Um, they fixed that with mass conscription as uh, they too began to evolve into a state of total war. And finally the revolutionary guard and the Iranian military would work together for the first time. <laughs> that was like the huge revolution in an Iranian military blown yeah. moment there. Like maybe we do this together. <laughs> um, and despite the new friendship, however, uh, the Iranians knew they could not hope to stand toe to toe constantly uh, with Iraq's massive advantage of tanks and heavy weapons and, and technology. So, um, they would try to pick their battles in places where Iraq would be hamstrung, mm-hmm. like marshes. Oh, marshes, you say? Yeah. Uh, which, of course, leads us to the Battle of the Marshes in uh, 1984. One of the weirdest battles I think I've ever heard of. Uh, and we have covered a lot of strange battles in this podcast to include a war on emus. <laughs> I still think the the Battle of the Marshes is stranger. Um, that's a tall order. Yeah. Yeah. And I honestly, I think the emus probably would have done better than the Iranian soldiers. <laughs> um, so the Southern portion of Iraq is full of marshes, wetlands and bogs and gross ass shit where Nick likes to get his whiskey from, um, drinking aside, marshes are good for other things. You can't drive a tank through one and they absorb the blast from artillery and bombs really well. Um, because once again, Knowing the story everyone learns from history, the Iraqis failed to defend the marshes because they thought they were totally impregnable. Mm-hmm. I mean, why would anybody go crawling through some disgusting swamps, right? Who would be dumb enough to attack through these marshes? Yeah, these wide open marshes. And these aren't like, you know, I, I, Michigan's pretty swampy in some areas uh, growing up. But like these aren't bogs and swamps like I pitched them. They're like mm-hmm. six foot deep in some places. <laughs> it's like a, a small lake. Yeah. Um, which I guess is the very definition of a swamp. Uh, so, um, so we're talking more like, you know, deep Louisiana, yeah. like bayou. Yeah. It's pretty water, gross. Hard to maneuver through and everything. Yeah. Full of gators. I don't know if there's any gators there, but I like to think there are. Uh, let's just pretend there's gators. It's funner that it's way. They're, all, they're also on the Iraqi side. <laughs> they're, you know, alligators, noted bathists. Um, so uh, the, the Iranians would uh, decide to attack in a different way by using something Iraqis have apparently never heard of. Those things are called boats. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know. I guess it's not too surprising for the Iraqis to like completely discount the concept of naval amphibious attack because their Navy had been hot garbage and destroyed since beginning of the war. You're telling me that Middle East countries don't really invest in their navies. You know, funny thing, uh, Iran had invested. Well, Iran didn't invest heavily in their Navy. The uh, Americans did Mm -hmm. uh, to the point they actually built, I think it was two or three battleships really, uh, or destroyers when the two not big on naval history, uh, and they're like for the Shah, yeah. like specifically. But the uh, the revolution happened before they could be delivered. Um, and uh, the the I think the Americans took years trying to shill them off on somebody else. Yeah. And I think they're called like the dead generals or the dead admirals class because they're all named after dead admirals. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, I can't imagine how much stronger the Iranians would have been with fucking two massive destroyers on their side too. Because with nothing but speedboats, they were destroying the Iraqi navy. Yeah. So. <laughs> And also because the American Navy ended up fighting the Iranian Navy, that would have been interesting if they oh, had destroyers. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah definitely. Um, 
uh, like I said, uh, they, the Iranians said they could use boats. Yeah, they went across them in speedboats like something out of Miami Vice. Because, like, these weren't military boats. They were, like, inflatable dinghies and speedboats. <laughs> and just imagine this, like, really cool yacht that belongs to the Shah. And it's just a bunch of guys with AKs hanging off the yeah. side of it, firing one of those tropical shirts. <laughs> Wearing uh, aviator sunglasses and Hawaiian shirts. Just firing off in the, the side background. of it. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Iranians attacked the oil producing Majnoon Islands and captured them uh, via landing troops uh, from a helicopter. So, yeah, apparently the Iraqis forgot about air assault as well. Air assault's the thing. Yeah. So that'll be the one nice thing I'll ever say about air assault in this podcast. Uh- <laughs> never noted, but never, ever acknowledged after this point. Yes. Yeah. So don't be too happy. Uh- <laughs> Uh, by the time the second wave of Iranian helicopters loaded down with soldiers were coming in, uh, the Iraqis were actually ready and intercepted them with fighter aircraft. Ooh. Never a good sign. There was, uh, there was 50 helicopters. All but one were shot down, full of soldiers. Oh, good. Yeah. And they, honestly, that's a pretty big hit to the Iranians, not because they lost so many soldiers. That's just another day at the office for them, but they can't replace those helicopters. They lost the helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the Iranians actually sowed confusion in Iraqi ranks by camouflaging themselves, which I assume means like just covering themselves in fetid swamp shit <laughs> and then like working behind enemy lines. Uh, Iranian ca- uh, commandos actually got so far behind the Iraqi lines, they managed to destroy a bunch of their artillery. Um, and going back to like when Iraq invaded Iran, Iraq is not good at like keeping account of their lines. <laughs> One time the Iranians built an entire road behind enemy lines and then bust in a division. <laughs> Like, Iraq's just not good at this. I mean, you have to say something about, like, if you have a bunch of commandos suddenly pop out of the swamp behind you and they're all looking like the swamp thing covered in peat and mud and shit, just psychological damage would be horrifying for that to happen to me. Like if I was just a random Iraqi yeah. guy sitting there and suddenly the swamp thing is coming to attack me. It's like the, the old really stereotypical Navy SEAL commercial. Oh, they're they're slowly just coming out of the, out of the swamp, <laughs> except it's just a whole bunch of dudes in like fucking t-shirts <laughs> smelling like awful swamp pond shit. Oh man. Um, the Iraqis countered this disgusting, uh, I assume they smelled like Lafroy, uh, swamp monsters. <laughs> and, uh, they actually used, uh, tons of helicopters, to, like hunt them down. And, uh, of course, chemical weapons. Cause the Iraqis can't do anything without dousing everything in mustard gas. Um, can't go wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, eventually the Iraqi helicopter teams began to suffer heavily from ground fire. So they thought of another countermeasure. What doesn't mix well with water? Mm. Electricity. <laughs> Uh, so channeling their inner Acme Department of Horrible War Crimes, uh, the Iraqi officers began unspooling thousands and thousands of f- feet of black, thick black electrical cables, like the same ones that they have hanging for power lines, mm-hmm. um, through the marshy battlefield. A network was soon formed that snaked through the patchwork of lagoons. The cords all went back to massive generators the Iraqis had brought to the front just for this reason. Like... Now, I'm, I'm going to go in depth about how this worked, and it worked really well. But, like, imagine being the guy at a staff meeting, and uh, everybody's coming up like, well, maybe we should put this in the trench. Maybe we should counter them with helicopters. And then someone who's, like, not paying attention but also watching, like, old Roadrunner cartoons, yeah. like, I got a fucking idea. That's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like somebody had been watching some Wiley Coyote shenanigans and was just like, maybe if we electrocute, like, if we electrify <laughs> the entire swamp. Yeah. And somebody signed off on us. Somebody was like, Johansson, that's brilliant. Go out there. And this is like dozens of miles of swamp. Like this, (laughs) it's a lot of fucking cable. It's a lot of cable. I mean, you have generators lined up. Like this was a significant, it wasn't just like one hillbilly trying to kill a bunch of gators out in his bayou. (laughs) Like this was legitimate miles and miles of ridiculous infrastructure just to electrify the swamps because of those damn Iranian boys again. Yeah. (laughs) 
yeah, so all the cords led back to giant generators. Once the network was completed, an Iraqi officer turned towards a journalist who was there and remarked, quote, you wait until nighttime and you'll see how the you, that we are going to be killing these Iranian dogs. We're going to fry them like eggplants. Somewhere a PA, like a, a Iraqi PAO just has his head in his hands, just regretting that he allowed the journalist to go without an escort. So that's the interesting part. The journalist, uh, his name is like Martin Fredrickson, uh, wasn't actually greenlit to go into <laughs> Iraq. Uh, he just went and he was driving like a Corolla to the <laughs> battlefield and then just showed up, which is um, I, I don't know how you got through the swamps with like ship anchor size balls seriously because this solid is solid brass balls this is the same point that like saddam is shooting everybody that displeases him personally like yeah. in the cabinet office and he's just rolling up there in his rental corolla just like yeah. please direct me to the war yeah which way to the front and like and then some iraqi officer has also has a lot of balls for not having him like take it away because you can imagine being the guy that's that like gets interviewed then Saddam finds out about it. Like it's probably not going to end well. Um, so as the sun went down, the uh, Iraqi, or sorry, the Iranian revolutionary guards began their almost nightly advance towards Iraqi lines. Some of them were aboard boats. Others were trudging through the sick, uh, gross swamp. Once they got within ray and range of the Iraqi lines, Iraqi artillery, uh, batteries began to open fire, but this wasn't a bombardment. They knew the bombardment wouldn't work. Instead, they were just using it to, scare them off their boats because the boats were unarmored and the Iraqis saw multiple times before that, that if they shut out the Iranians while they're on the boats, the Iranians would just jump off because they're safer in the water. Um, Have you ever seen that Mythbusters episode where they shoot into the water to see how much damage it does? Like literally a foot of water is all you need to be safe. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, it's, it's a lot safer to be swimming through some bog shit than in a boat. Mm -hmm. Um, But unfortunately for the Iranians, it's exactly what the Iraqis wanted them to do. Somewhere down the Iraqi line, an officer shrugged, really hoping this stupid idea would work and flipped the switch to the generators. Instantly, thousands of volts surged through the marshlands where the hundreds, if not thousands of Iranian soldiers were fucking flash fried in swamp grease. Holy shit. Um, This caused a general retreat amongst Iranian soldiers, and they were totally unaware of what the fuck was happening. Because it's not like uh, it's not like cartoons where you actually hear it Mm -hmm. like. People were just dropping dead and like falling into the swamp, not moving anymore. Yeah. Nobody had any idea what the fuck was happening. Yeah, just hundreds of guys are suddenly frying in the water. Yeah. They have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Iranian soldiers are probably wondering about all those rumors they probably heard about Saddam's fucking personal magician <laughs> as they watched their squad leader's fucking eyeballs melt out of their head. I bet they really miss the Shah's personal magician at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm still heartbroken that we know nothing more about him. Yeah. Yeah. I've need to do a postscript need to get a hold of that magician get some information uh, so i mean i have to wonder i'm sure that the twitter uh military law experts and jag officers can weigh in on this but is it actually a war crime you know i don't think it is water i don't think it is not um, to, like, i mean we're really mincing a war that features heavy use of chemical and biological weapons but yeah and let's routine execution to pow's and uh, torture and, there's a lot worse going on against the laws of land warfare going yeah. on here yeah uh not a lot of respect being given to any kind of law here no uh, uh i'm gonna say uh that it's probably not a war crime i mean in comparison to everybody everything else this is pretty mellow <laughs> i mean <laughs> just imagine a war so bonkers that electrifying miles of swamp is <laughs> yeah, it's okay yeah and I have to imagine it's still taught at like the Iraqi staff college. <laughs> when in doubt, roll out the generators. Yeah. There's still like a, a long line of, of cable in the Basra swamps, just in case that <laughs> I never gets any ideas again. Um, 
So, so many Iranians died that Mark Feynman of the Los Angeles Times said, quote, the following morning, Iraqi troops began another grisly routine that the officer called the morning road detail. They made their way through the marshes, gathering up dead Iranian soldiers like dynamite fishermen, harvesting a day's catch. Working methodically, the Iraqis piled the corpses up one by one in the water, head to toe stacks, five high and five across. Together, the, the human piles formed long rows, the width of a troop truck, the top layer just above the water's surface. Each row extended a straight line through the marshes from the Iraqi positions towards the Iranian border. Finally, the rows are sprinkled with lime and covered with a foot layer thick of desert sand. It was the Iraqi method of road building, using bodies as their enemies to, consult, to construct assault routes for tanks and trucks. The Iranians would lose over 40,000 soldiers in the marshes before finally giving up. I, I know it's royally fucked up, but that's one of the most metal things I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Corpse road. Building roads with the bodies of your enemies. Yes. Like Genghis Khan didn't even do anything like that. That is insane. Yeah, they're one head pyramid away from being It's <laughs> just like the Mongol hordes. Like we're just piling up bodies. I mean, I mean they, they must have faith in the structural integrity of corpses. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Iranians are known for their road constructing abilities. They're very hardy, yeah. their bodies. When, when you stack them five high. That is absolutely bonkers. Imagine being this soldier that's like, so we're just driving on bodies now, huh? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be a morale killer. It's just like, well, I guess I'm just stacking corpses yeah. to make roads. Some civil engineer is just very upset that his, <laughs> his degree is being used to make corpse road. Yeah. <laughs> corpse Boulevard. <laughs> yeah. Fucking amazing. Uh, I get like imagine being the guy that uh, it gets you like the the orders from on high to what to do like uh, well we have to build these roads across the marshes right uh, just use what you got and some like really bright lieutenants like looks around just sees fields of dead Iranians like <laughs> got an idea the light bulb goes <laughs> off over his head because we're we're living in a Acme cartoon yeah. uh, Looney Tunes cartoon now oh god uh, I mean there were some bright spots uh, while the attack was a. Uh, total bloody failure it did show the iranians that swift nighttime boat attacks could work mm -hmm. assuming you didn't run into an electrified swamp <laughs> and how many more times could that fucking happen <laughs> like guys that probably won't happen again right that's an interesting caveat to put in your planning considerations is like is the swamp electrocuted <laughs> are we fighting saddam coyote <laughs> saddam e coyote um and that brings us to operation dawn eight uh like i said uh it would be um, uh, it would be a mistake to say that um, all of the Donner operations were hilarious failures, um, but this one was not. Uh, it is so in 1986, uh, but the uh, the American trained Shaw officers plan a nighttime attack by having swarming hordes of rubber dinghies to storm across a shot al Arab and take Iraqis by surprise. It's hard to take a military operation seriously that uses dinghies. Yeah, yeah, and I, it's fun to say dinghies. I guess I could have called them swift boats, mm, dinghies but better. I'm going with dinghy. Dinghy's better. Yeah, uh, it worked. Uh, the entire Alpha Providence was captured in uh, only 24 hours. Uh, despite constant Iraqi counterattacks led personally by the, the Iraqi chief of staff, a guy named Maher al-Rashid, the Iranians would hold on to this massive piece of land until the end of the war. Though, uh, side note about our friend al-Rashid, uh, Saddam was practically in love with the guy for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, he was... Uh, so the, the Iraqi army went to shit at the beginning of the war and Saddam actually pulled them out of retirement to put it back together. Uh, despite his constant failures, he was never fired or executed like everybody else was. Um, <laughs> he has that Luigi Cadorna look. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's, he's never, never good at his job, but uh, I like his face. <laughs> 
uh, Rahad Al Hamandi, the uh, who's the Republican Guard commander, actually called Al Rashid quote the dumbest person in the army, which is honestly <laughs> one hell of a insult at this point. Dumbest person in the Iraqi army is like the mayor of the the village idiots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one reason that uh, Al Fa fell so quickly is that it wasn't actually being protected by the Iraqi army. The Iraqis, assuming the Iranians would never assault across the Shat al-Arab, uh, hardly bothered to protect it at all. If that sounds familiar, you're catching on. Uh, <laughs> they put units of what is known as the Iraqi Popular Army in charge of the area, which is like hardly a militia. Uh-huh. It's effectively the Iraqi version of the Basij uh, volunteer units of the Iranians, except the Iraqis would confusingly conscript people into this militia. It, never, it does not make sense. So it's kind of like the British Home Guard in like World War II, where it's just like the old guys that can't enlist, so they yeah. go around with a broomstick ready to hit Nazis that land in Britain. Yeah, effectively the same thing. But they actually drafted people into this organization? Yes. That's bonkers. Instead of drafting people into their army and actually training them, uh, I guess it's easier to just draft them and like, here, you're in the military now. Have a stick. Have this pointy stick. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a little more than a bath party militia. Like, I think the only thing you had, you had to be a party member, which was pretty common in Iraq anyway at the time. Yeah. Um, it was made full of uh, teenagers and old men, some at least 50 years old. And at the first end of a fight, the vast majority of them dropped their weapons and ran as fast as they could. As as untrained militia do. Yeah. Yeah. The only time militia are ever good, and I've learned this from Empire Total War, <laughs> is uh, if you smash them in the middle, surrounded by people who won't, who won't run. Uh, so apparently Saddam needs to brush up on his line tactics. Yep. Uh, in response to this, Saddam relaunched uh, what is now known as the War of the Cities. Now, uh, the War of the Cities technically began back in 1984 when Iran refused his initial really bad attempts at negotiating a ceasefire. Uh, it was weird. It's like it would have worked as a tactic if mm-hmm. Saddam wasn't a fucking idiot. Well, um, <laughs> that's kind of like the undercurrent in this entire story. Yeah. Yeah. It's like um, a debate, but everybody has CTE. <laughs> um, but uh, I didn't want to cover the multiple pieces of the war of the cities within the Iran Iraq war bit by bit. Cause it'd just be confusing as hell. So we'll cover them all right now. Uh, so the war of the cities was a series of air and missile strikes against civilian targets inside Iran. And it was the first time in the history of war where both sides would attempt to strike at each other with ballistic missiles, which is nice. <laughs> um, that's kind of fun. That's good. <laughs> Cheeky and fun version of war. You know, when you're using ballistic missiles on each other, yeah. uh, on each other. And uh, towards the end of the war, uh, Iraq would actually get uh, some, Uh, tweaked scud missiles that they'd sent off to brazil of all places um and they would be able to travel a thousand kilometers all the way to tehran um it wasn't in fact uh, an extension of the total war program that both states were waging and was a terror bombing campaign against citizens um now the excuse was factories and infrastructure were the target um and that may have been the case at first uh but iraq's uh, attacks on Iran were incredibly inaccurate and would just wipe out t- entire city blocks from time to time. Yeah, Scuds aren't known for being very pinpoint accurate weapons. No, not at all. And some of them were full of chemical weapons, which is where um, the U.S. got the idea to be worried about them during the Gulf War because okay. they gave them both the Scud missiles and the chemical weapons. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say my dad was in Desert Storm. He was a finance officer driving around the desert with satchels of money to pay the soldiers. So he told me that, I mean, the, the thing they were really worried about, I mean, he was sitting in Saudi Arabia for six months because the war lasted all of 72 hours, the yeah. actual ground campaign. He would talk about how uh, they're just worried about Scud missiles. And, you know, uh, Saddam was 
hucking Scud missiles all over the place, hucking them, you know, firing, closer to the mic, firing yeah. them at like uh, the Israelis, firing at Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And it's just interesting that that tactic didn't originate in Desert Storm. You know, it was something yeah. that was done during the Iran Iraq war. Yeah. He's just flinging them randomly. Like there's I don't I don't know. I'm not a missile tech guy, <laughs> uh, but I have been told that there's it's pretty much a V2 rocket. And that yeah. you just point it in the general direction and let it fly. Yeah. Um, but it, it wasn't a constant thing either. Like it, if you could picture this as like his version of the Battle of Britain or like uh, uh, any other kind of uh, total war bombing campaign where you try to sever the uh, infrastructure and the, and the supply lines, you have to keep it consistent so they don't rebuild. Yeah. And uh, Saddam never did. Um, it, was, it, it wasn't constant. The attacks always begin and then quickly end once Saddam got distracted by something else. <laughs> um, because they, they, it would only start when he got pissed off about something. Like they took the Alpha Providence. So he's like, oh, have some missiles, fuckheads. <laughs> and then like it, it only began in the first place because they shot down a ceasefire idea. Like it wasn't a tactic as much as he was just angry and, fuck, and wanted to show them how angry he was. And so it was like the, the version of shit posting on Twitter when you're yeah. in a bad mood. It's just hucking scud missiles <laughs> at cities. Saddam, noted shit poster. Noted yeah. shit poster, except he used chemical weapons yeah. instead of tweets. Yeah. And, and which, I mean, I think we can all agree that the uh, the tweet war is much more tragic. Yeah, so I'm a uh, proud veteran. Yeah. Uh, I'll wear that ribbon. Happy Veterans Day. <laughs> you're welcome for my service. <laughs> That's the only thing, actually, because uh, I keep getting posted by everything uh, or I get uh, tagged by everything on Facebook and stuff. And like, oh, oh uh, shout out to all my veterans. The only thing I posted was uh, was a picture of um, uh, the king of Persia from 300 with his arms out. Yeah. And it just says, you're welcome for my service. Because <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I'm just I'm just insufferable. And you're a proud veteran. Yeah, right. I, I appreciate your service. <laughs> you shitbag. Yeah. Shitbag of legend. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, published uh, shitbag. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Take that, all the sergeants that said, you want to be a writer when you have the army? No, really, what's your plan? Shut up, Kasabian. Yeah. Fucking idiot. Re-enlist or die. <laughs> you don't re-enlist, you're going to die homeless and addicted to drugs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Joke's on you, I can't afford drugs. Yeah. I can't get addicted if I can't afford them. And I'm not pretty <laughs> enough to sell myself. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'd probably throw a fiver at you. It's, it's good. <laughs> that might get me a joint at one of the corner stores here. Um... <laughs> So these, uh, I mean, the, the raids are dumber uh, than it sounds when you look a little closer at them. Uh, these raids would get more and more effective uh, as the Iranian Air Force was ground down over time uh, because Iran couldn't replace their jets and they mm-hmm. didn't have any replacement parts to fix the ones that got heavily damaged. They'd like cannibalize some damaged jets to fix other ones. There's only so much you can do. Yeah. Um, and unlike I, uh, like uh, almost the entire Iranian war effort is centered in Iran, unlike Iraq, who had half the known world flooding it with weapons, like half the shit Iran was getting. They were building or refurbishing or slapping together in Iran. Yeah. Um, so thousands of Iranians would be killed and tons uh, of damage was done to the teetering Iranian state. But then, like I said, Saddam would just get bored and do something else, giving the Iran, giving the Iranians time to rebuild and beef up their anti-air networks. So, um, a good example of that was Alpha when uh, the Providence fell. Some ordered a series of strikes over the course of a couple of days and then stopped. Uh, the War of the Seas was actually the original reason why the Iranian Revolutionary Guard started its missile program, which we now know today as their nuclear program. Oh, joy. Yeah. So thanks, Saddam. <laughs> Saddam continues to ruin everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they they knew, and just like today, they, uh, the Revolutionary Guard is almost like an the main power arm of the Iranian government. Yeah. And the, you can definitely see that 
um, back then because they just started their own fucking missile program completely independent of the military and government. Just out of the blue. There's still a whole bunch of religious zealots like, we need nukes. Uh, and it's not that surprising because like uh, Saddam had a nuke program when the war started yep. and uh, the Iranians knew like if he finishes that shit, <laughs> we're going to get nuked. Yeah. I mean, he's already <laughs> hucking missiles. He's using ballistic missiles. I mean, yeah. Saddam's not going to stop at not using a nuclear weapon if he gets his hands on one. Yeah. Uh, so a secondary effect of the fall of Alpha was Iraq reinvading Iran. Um Tens of thousands of Iraqi troops stormed over the border and captured the city of Miran at the foot of the Zargos Mountains. Um, it's hardly a fight. The, the city is not, does not have any kind of tactical advantages, um, and it's entirely unimportant outside of propaganda. Yeah. Um, so why did Saddam do that? Because uh, he, he was uh, offering the Iranians a trade. He's like, I'll give you this city back if you give me back my providence. <laughs> this is like middle Pete? school lunch tradesies. Like, I'll give you my snack pack for a fucking banana. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Saddam might just be the worst diplomat in the fucking world. It's just like, I'm, I'm going to seize one of your cities and trade it back to you. For this and, entire providence. And, and if not, I'm going to just keep hucking missiles and killing your people. Yeah. Uh, so Iran declared no takesies backsies and launched a counterattack. And <laughs> the dro- sacred law. Yeah, yeah. I now invoke NATO Charter point six of no takesies backsies. Um, the counterattack drove the Iraqis all the way back uh, to I- back into Iraq and cost them ten thousand dead. <laughs> so not a great plan, Iraq. Mission accomplished. Yeah, the battle screwed over the Iraqi military so badly that Saddam was forced to call a general mobilization uh, for the first time. Uh, for people who weren't already in uniform. Um, it's actually pretty surprising that uh, he didn't already have one of those. Uh, you figure, because his army was already conscripts. Yeah. Uh, but a general mobilization, you know, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel, you're getting everybody. Uh, and Saddam was actually holding off on that for a good reason. He figured the general mobilization would re- lead to draft riots and unrest mm-hmm. because uh, the economy was already trashed yeah. from the war. Um, I mean, they're getting billions and billions and billions of dollars from the outside, but that's all going into the war effort. Yeah. So people were pretty much only being held in line for fear of getting shot. Uh, But now if a general mobilization, you're going to get shot because you're going to go fight Iran. So he is a valid concern uh, of his, but it didn't happen. Instead, everybody showed up to the draft like they were told to, even college students. Uh, But because Saddam didn't have time to fuck around with things like training or arming these people, he just shoved them all into the popular army instead of the regular army. (laughs) (laughs) This is, this is a continuing series of royal fuck-ups on both sides. It's like both sides sprinting to the bottom of just dumb dumb ideas, dumb tactics, dumb strategic decisions. You know, and this war, like, Iraq would have lost the war in six months, and Saddam probably would have collapsed if it wasn't for the rest of the world holding him up. I mean, it's, it is impressive when you think about the fact that the Iranians, despite their royal fuck-ups on their side, continue to be successful, considering Iraq is being propped up by three quarters of the world. Yeah. The entire Western world. And you, you would think, yeah, I, I know I covered it in the first episode, but like at, at this point is a golden opportunity for the Soviets to get involved. Like, well, we get to fuck with the Americans again, mm-hmm. but Iran had pissed off the Soviets so bad. <laughs> they wouldn't give them weapons. You know, what's bad when the Soviets won't back you against an American backed organization. Yeah. On principle. Yeah. I mean, like, the Soviets support a lot of really awful people just cause like, well, you know, if, as long as you fuck with the Americans, right, I'm on board. Right. And I mean, like, likewise, we've done the same thing. But like the one rule to get like Soviet aid is like, don't kill all the communists in your country. Yep. And that's what Iran did. And like, they fucked it up immediately. Like, yeah. Immediately when, <laughs> when the revolution, because like, 
Uh, and the, the weird part was, is the communists actually helped the revolutionaries get power. Yep. And they're like, uh, guys, <laughs> the tables have turned. <laughs> Got you good, fucker. <laughs> uh, and to make matters worse for Saddam, Iranian special forces and Kurdish fighters managed to infiltrate the oil-rich area of Kirkuk and start blowing shit up. They attacked oil refineries, train depots, and supply dumps and managed to ambush the, the entire headquarters of the Iraqi intelligence service and kill 600 people in just two days. Holy shit. Um you know, at this point, like we were just talking about, this is just unfair to Iran. Like mm-hmm. Iraq would have imploded in on itself a hundred times over at this point. But they're like, how, do you ever play a lot of video games? Yeah. I play a lot of video games. Have you ever played it like an RPG where you're not actually meant to beat the boss, but you don't know it? Yeah. So you just waste everything trying to fight this unwinnable battle. That's mm-hmm. kind of like what the Iran is. They're just scripted to lose no matter how hard you try. Yeah. Just um, by virtue of all the support that the Iraqis are getting from, you know, the Western world. And they continue to do the best they can and they come very close to winning, but it's kind of hard to when you have the United States and all these other countries yeah. pouring billions of dollars and, you know, millions of rounds of ammunition, all this equipment to outfit the Iraqi army. So every time they fuck up, they can replace it. And like direct naval support when the Iraqi Navy fell apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they crippled the Iraqi economy. That was like one of the first things they did, but it didn't matter because they have a blank check from the rest of the goddamn planet. Uh, <laughs> they crippled their military over and over and over again. And instead of winning, someone just gives them unlimited supplies of tanks, jets and supplies and giggles while you keep killing each other until the heat death of the universe. That's kind of like, you know, just like that rich, dumb kid that continues to pour money and like lose it on dumb things. But yeah. daddy made so much money they can keep going at it. Yeah. Like all the hedge fund kids. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of <laughs> like, you know, if Elon Musk tried to get involved in, you know, international warfare instead of just building bond villain projects like he does now yeah he he could do a lot of things but instead he's gonna launch a car into space and giggle <laughs> like oh no joe he's an absolute genius you know it's not massive ego that led him to launch his fucking car into space yeah yeah or, or call like Thai rescuers pedophiles for daring to rescue children. Yeah, for questioning whether, you know, the the Elon Musk submersible is not a great thing to use in a fucking tunnel system. <laughs> Like, what would a, a British diver with decades of experience know about something like that? He reminds me of Mr. Burns. <laughs> like, the episode where he goes nuts and builds the spruce goose. <laughs> but it's just him all the time. It's like Howard Hughes. He just isn't peeing in jars quite yet. <laughs> He's not quite at the, the yeah. locking himself up and pissing in jars stage of rich yet. insanity. Yet. It's coming around the corner. What would be the movie that he watches over and over again? Like, yeah. if he was locked up. I probably feel the Martian while he masturbates. This <laughs> is just the mention of Mars is probably enough to get Elon Musk going. Yeah. Uh, is there a movie where a rich person is the good guy? He's, he's definitely watching Iron Man and, and <laughs> up, I'm upset that he isn't Tony Stark. Like he's ignoring the part where Tony Stark realizes his weapons are the ones killing the Afghan children. Yes. Like he skips over that part and the rest of it was like, oh, of course he's a genius. Yeah. It's, it's like all the Nazis that I, I grew up with that uh, really liked American History X. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, did you not watch the second it's part? Like, did you, you miss the whole part <laughs> yeah. where he actually realizes his shit, right? Yeah. Like you missed that portion yeah, of it. It literally gets his family killed. Or like the Marines that watch uh, Full Metal Jacket just for the the first half and they never watch the second half yeah. of it because it's like oh man it's awesome you know all this cool stuff going on at boot camp is like well a guy kills the drill instructor yeah, and, then himself, and then they all go to vietnam and horrible things happen to yeah. them all it's all the th- and then it's written by a noted anti-war activist yeah, like the whole thing is kind of like meant to trash the marine corps and yes then the marines watch it and like yeah fuck yeah, yeah marines happy birthday wrong, by the yeah. way happy birthday marine corps <laughs> even though you're just a member of the navy yeah yeah and i'll never ever 
ever let that go. <laughs> that is a hill that he will die on. <laughs> I've died on worse hills. <laughs> I got I got a lot of uh, angry people in my mentions when I said all vodka tastes the same. Oh man, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to join you on that hill because I haven't tasted a vodka that tastes anything other than vodka. Yeah, yeah, it mm. tastes like liquefied hairspray, and that's okay because it gets fun. you fucked up. Exactly. Um, Back to the arena, right? Cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no vodka here because that's haram. Mm. Uh, so, uh, the, but the god, the, the Iranians just never gave up. They literally just launched more offensive this time towards their prize of Basra. Um, now, unlike the last surprising attack on Alpha, this one would not be planned by military minds because uh, why would you do something that worked twice in a row? You got to keep the enemy guessing. You shake it up a little yeah, bit. Yeah. This time they would be planned and led by a random politician named Akbar Rashafshani who, prior to the revolution, was a pistachio merchant who studied theology <laughs> on the weekends. Uh, dur- during the revolution, he was put in charge of the Ayatollah's finances and is one of the founders of the Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, because he thought the revolutionary purges of the Imperial Iranian Army didn't go quite far enough. I mean, I mean there's one person I can think of to plan and lead a strategic offensive. It's a pistachio merchant. Yeah. Uh, these are all qualities that make a successful military commander. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> a, a, a casual weekend imam yeah. who's a pistachio merchant. I, I just dabble in imaming. He went to night school for imams. Yeah. Like, I don't know if that's a thing, but this guy apparently did it. Yeah, I went to Madras on weekends. Uh, so, you know, uh, with that, I, Akbar was given a 200,000-man army, made up mostly Revolutionary Guard and volunteers, and struck out at Iraqi lines on midnight of uh, January 1987. Initially, uh, it seemed to be the case with the Iranian army. They found great success. Uh, incompetent Iraqi soldiers and leaders folded pretty quickly, and the Iranians captured the town of Salamcha. Uh, like most Iranian attacks, however, with great advances become horrible casualties. <laughs> and much like the Russians during World War II, human meat was their number one weapon, and all their losses were quickly reinforced. Um, Iraqis quickly launched a counterattack. They knew how important Basra was and would spare no expense at driving the Iranians out. They scraped together all their heavy weapons and sent them charging at the enemy. The only problem was Basra was a marshland and the Iraqi tanks quickly got stuck. This shouldn't have surprised them because they're in Iraq and should probably know their own country. Uh, the Iranians knew this, actually, and kept the majority of their tanks away from the battle. I mean... This certainly helped. They hardly had any, but still, they knew Iraq better than the Iraqi military. That's the impressive thing. I mean, the fighting on home ground, you'd expect the Iraqi army to have kind of an idea of what the terrain looks like. And I guess they yeah. just, I mean, classic guess too, he never got the map sheets out in time, so <laughs> nobody knew what the fuck was going on. Yeah, also, like, they were dug in very near to there. So, like, they had to know, like, those are marshes, right? We probably shouldn't drive our tanks through that, right? No, nah, fuck it, drive. Go, go, <laughs> so, go, go. Saddam says drive the tanks. <laughs> okay. okay. All right, well. If Saddam says so, I guess it'll be fine. Uh, the Iraqi Air Force, though, had no excuse. There's no swamp in the air. Uh, <laughs> so using brand new Russian jets, the Su-25, if anybody's keeping track at home, the Iraqis rushed hundreds of jets to try to keep the Iranians at bay. They actually outnumbered the Iranian Air Force a full 10 to 1. Those are pretty good odds. And I'm not telling you the story because it ends well. Uh, none of it would matter. The Iraqis would be decimated and a full 10% of their entire air force is shot down over the battlefield, once again allowing the Iranians air supremacy. This is like the third time this has happened. Um, but like we just talked about, it didn't matter. It's like they get boats full of new jets immediately. Yeah, 10% of the air force getting wiped out. I mean, it's not exactly like the pilots are... You know, I mean, obviously you have to have a degree of training with pilots, but yeah. I mean, the Iraqis still have a lot of people. And it's not like they're at a premium with the Iranian Air Force, it seems like, who had 
guys who had been trained by the Americans were right. actually skilled pilots and therefore could, you know, deal with the fact that if you have 10 enemy jets going against you, if you actually know what the hell you're doing, odds are still pretty well on your side. Yeah. But, and it's like the Iraqi army's training was, and I assume their pilot training is much the same way in that they just kind of taught them how to operate the jets and then everything else is political indoctrination. Here's the start button and here's yeah. how you fire the missiles. And here is five, like, Five days of instruction on how great Saddam is. The Iraqi Air Force was so confused and misguided that um, there was, they actually had to come out with a rule that um, you cannot use um, you cannot use uh, fixed wing air support anywhere the Iraqi helicopters were flying because they just kept shooting each other down. <laughs> the vehicle idea was not a, a, a priority no. of training. Back then. And, and it, it goes, it, it, I've probably said this in every episode now, but I can't be understated enough that Saddam's philosophy for the military was, I just want the best, shiniest stuff and fuck training the soldiers. You know, it's the classic dictator view of, like, yeah. you know, the military is a pride point. You know, I, I, right. like, I like parades and I like things like that. And it, it helps he took part in a military coup. So he knew, like, an independently intelligent and strategic military would definitely overthrow him yeah because he's an asshole so he just did his best to fill the military full of fucking idiot yes men yeah uh and it shows it really shows uh so waves of iranian soldiers supported by close air support which they finally figured out would break over and over again against a human seawall of iraqi defenses even though they broke through four different lines of iraqi trenches the preceding line behind it would just keep up the fight and then retake the trench um which I know I've been harsh on the Iraqi military during these episodes, and I'm not sorry about that. They absolutely deserve it. They're yeah. awful. Um, I will die on this hill. Uh, but once they are actually put behind several dozen feet of dirt and cement and trenches and um, put in their own territory, they actually fought really well. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with their officers and their staff officers and everything else um, being mostly incompetent mm -hmm. and leading maneuvers. And uh, you really don't have to command fixed defense um, like they they really just uh, have to sit there like you, you can't fuck that up. Yeah. I mean, the strategic defense is a lot easier for a reason. I mean, it doesn't take as I mean, you can definitely put effort into it and develop a, a effective defense. Right. You know, engagement area development like we do in the army and things like that. But like, you know, in terms of skill and planning considerations and stuff. It's pretty much just sit there and wait for someone to come by so you can shoot them. Yeah. Which I, is what the Iraqis are. That's pretty much the level the Iraqis were at. Yeah. They, they throughout the war. That's the peak of their, of their ability. Uh, they never, brilliance. Yeah. They never really quite figured out combined arms warfare. Mm -hmm. Um, they would lead, uh, infantry list tank assaults. Um, they would, they, it was really weird. I've never like you, you only see this shit in like world war one. Yeah. Um, because it hadn't been figured out yet. These guys don't have an excuse. Yeah. Or like World War II on the Eastern Front where the Russians, I mean, Soviets didn't have the equipment right. to do anything other than launch human bodies at the, the Germans. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, I don't know. It, it's weird that they managed to just not fall apart. Cause I, I understand that, uh, the Iraqis were, were held up by everybody else, mm -hmm. but like the military still stood there and fought, which is more than I figured they'd still be doing at this point. I figured they would just be running for the hills and deserting, and they were deserting a lot. Uh, there was actually a um, that same journalist who was there for the Battle of the Marshes. Um, like like I say, he, he was not a guest of the Iraqi government, and uh, he just traveled by civilian transport. And one time he was on a bus, um, and it was stopped by a police car. And uh, like four 
uniformed police officers came aboard, talked to four people. I think it was four or five uh, young men who were just in, on the bus, mm-hmm. talked to them momentarily. Uh, they went off the bus with them and then they shot them on the side of the road for being deserters. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, there is a lot of people deserting. Well, there's a lot. I mean, there's something to be said about the fear of you oh, know, yeah. what are you going to do if you desert? I mean, you're apparently going to get pulled off a bus and shot by the side of the road. Yeah, but, in broad daylight. Yeah, but there's also something to be said about defending your homeland, even if the guy running your homeland is a bastard. He's still our bastard. Yeah. You know, it's better than having the the Ayatollah take over Iraq and, you know, establish yeah. whatever sort of revolutionary uh, Islamic government. And uh, the Ayatollah actually did establish a weird government in exile and put uh, some cleric in charge uh, who was even more extreme than the Ayatollah <laughs> by his speeches. Uh, There's even like a little military called like the MEK that he stood up that mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit about in the next episode, but it, they were fucking nuts. Even, even by revolutionary standards, even by revolutionary yeah. guard standards, they so were like, nuts. E- even the people who were like, man, Saddam's an asshole. You're just sitting in a trench line. You're like, Ooh, that guy's a bigger asshole. Like yeah. I'll stay in my trench. Exactly. Uh, but, um, you know, like I've said about a, a hundred times through four episodes now, the Iranian, Offensive quickly ground to a halt. Um, their supplies once again ran out and they can no longer sustain the attack. Um, and the people that they that knew how to handle what little supply and logistics the Iranians did have were not consulted for the battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the closest thing they they could get was about seven miles from the city and they would leave behind the 60,000 casualties. The city of Basra itself is largely reduced to rubble from uh, airstrikes and artillery in less than a month. Uh, and with good reason, this battle is now referred to as the Psalm of Iraq. Um, during the battle, I know I've shit talked the uh, Iranian like we we just laughed at the Iranians going into battle on white horses. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're actually going to talk about one of those guys uh, is revolutionary guard leader named Hosan Karazai, who uh, had been a leading figure in the guard since like the revolutionary purges. I think he probably got to this because he was not a military guy. He had no military training whatsoever, um, which is what you don't want in a military leader, of course. Yeah, I think he just got to the top of the guard because he was just really, really good at shooting people who were counter revolutionary. <laughs> uh, he was one of the people that. Uh, like we talked about in the first episode that uh, would just break into people's homes. And if they had anything that could be traced to the Shah, they got shot. Um, he and his uh, like roving band of fucking purge people, like from the movie, purge people. Would, would kill so many people. The Ayatollah was like, eh, maybe you should calm down. Like, we still have to rule a country full of people eventually. The Ayatollah is telling you to pump your brakes. It's a pretty bad yeah. sign. Yeah, but he, uh, he was uh, a present at pretty much every major Iranian battle during the war up to this point to include uh, the first battle of Kormshar uh, before the Revolutionary Guard really had their shit together. Um, he uh, would actually die while leading the 14th Imam Hussein Brigade, sorry, division, armed only with a flag. Not a good idea. Which is what you do in late 20th century warfare. Yeah, he was quickly machine gunned <laughs> and died. Um, so, like, a uh, that it, it just blows my mind that, that they had any success because like they have no command and control. There's no like real squad decision making. It's just wave after wave of assholes with flags. Yeah, and most of the leadership are guys that are in positions of leadership because they just murked the individuals that actually knew what the fuck they were doing. Yeah, it, it 
it's like because I, I always compare the uh, the the Iranian Revolution to the French Revolution because all the purges and everything. But even then, when they formed the revolutionary uh, French army uh, for the the coalition wars, they mm-hmm. still were like, okay, we have to put the military back in charge. Even yeah. though even though some of them are probably totally loyal to the king, we still need these guys. Yeah, I mean, you still had that core of officers. I mean, some people that uh, were able to survive the purges and stayed and you know, yeah. declared loyalty to uh, revolutionary French government. Like, they're still the military officers. Like. Some of the leadership of, you know, those revolutionary French armies were definitely like political appointees that rose up with the revolution. But yeah. you still had a solid core of officers who had some general idea of what the hell they're doing. And I, I know uh, Mill Twitter loves to shit talk officers as, yeah. as as one does. Every majority of enlisted folk hate a majority of officers. It's the way cats and dogs it's the natural, yeah. nature things. But there's something to be said about individuals who are actually trained to understand not just tactics but like strategy and logistics and stuff it's it takes a little bit more than just being really motivated about the <laughs> iranian revolutionary government you know it's just like being a devout muslim doesn't mean that you're very effective at planning logistics that are required to execute an effective offensive it's yeah. like you know hopes and hopes and prayers only work for school shootings and for you know uh they don't really work too well for planning yeah. offensives yeah uh you can't thoughts and prayers your way to uh, most things yeah and you know it's it's kind of weird because uh, the, there's a lot of political appointees uh, like during the French Revolution who were who were officers who just had the right political connections that just didn't exist here. It was like, OK, you worked for the Shah, you die. Yeah. And it's like, man, you really shot yourself in the dick. Um, Pretty much well, close to literally for a majority of this, yeah. this war. And, you know, it, it's people always talk about like you're talking about mill Twitter, talking about officers and stuff. Yeah. An officer, officer list, leaderless army has been attempted on multiple occasions. It did not work. It's a disaster every time. There's something to be said about this idea of, you know, everybody, everyone's a comrade and everyone's the same rank. Yeah. It's like, well, there are certain endeavors in life that require a degree in structure. And you yeah. can't, you can't stop the middle of an offensive to have a democratic vote on if we go left or right. Right. And, and you can't have people that don't know what the hell they're doing at all plan major offensives that are very complicated and require a lot of planning and logistical support and everything. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's something that you come to appreciate when you get into history is like, oh, there's a lot more to this. Like even people like criticize 18th century, 17th century warfare. There's marching each other in lines. True, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of thought that goes into that and why it works. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just because, like, oh, well, we'll just keep shooting at each other because we're morons. It's yeah. like your smooth more buskets have a range of maybe 100 meters. Yeah. And past 100 meters, like, it's going to fly off to the left or something. Yeah. So there's a reason why you had to mass these guys and shoot at each other yeah. at short distances. It yeah. wasn't just madness, and it wasn't just the officers being, you know, the, the son of an earl going out and being like, allow the pause to die before me. I don't care. <laughs> That's part of it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a portion of it. I mean, that's, that's, that's why I became an officer, yeah. really, if you think about it. Yes. Purchased your commission. Yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoy ordering around the pores. I, I come from a large plantation family. <laughs> Give me my fancy hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, that is uh, episode four. Uh, we'll pick up next week, which will finally be the final episode of the Iran Iraq War, because this thing has spiraled completely out of my control. I just I, I'm honestly surprised that the war actually ever ended based off of how all this is going, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about a little bit uh, next episode. But, uh, you know, I found out that the last POWs were actually not released from Iraq until we invaded in 2003. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> These guys just sitting around for a couple decades. Yeah. You know, it's like Saddam's like, no, no, I won't kill them. I just want to look at them. I'm just going to keep them in cages. Yeah. 
I guess, I mean, they should be happy that Uday and Kuse didn't feed them into a wood chipper or something. I'm kind of surprised they didn't. And I'm, I'm sure I, I, I haven't really looked into it quite yet, but I'm sure there's quite a bit of torture at play. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was talking to Nick during the last episode. I'm really sad I can't talk about Uday and Kuse in any in any like meaningful capacity during the series because they weren't involved. Yeah. But that means I have to cover them anyway because they were killed fighting U.S. forces. So technically that's military history. You could do a special episode of those two. I mean, it's it's just amazing to think of all the bad shit and insane things that those two did. I mean, if you think about the evil dictators, even more evil sons. Yes. It's Uday and Kuse. They are like, there's some people in history that you have to think, um, like they went out of their way to be the worst fucking human being on earth. Like we were just talking about Leopold II of Belgium is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uday and Kuse definitely up there. It takes a special kind of someone to be evil enough to actually install a wood chipper for the sole purpose of feeding people in feet first. So you can watch their faces going through it. Like and that's an a special dripping kind. prison. It's a special kind of <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. To do that. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks for, Coming to the Pacific, uh, the great Pacific moist west. I did here. it solely to be on the podcast. Yeah, I want yeah. you to know I'm trying to ride your coattails to glory. Yeah, I'm trying to. Uh, yeah, our, our Patreon is so high now. We can just bust people in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, speaking of which, uh, if you like our show, go ahead and donate to the Patreon. If you think what we do is worth a dollar, our main episodes will always be free. But if you donate a buck, you get access to all of our bonus stuff where we talk about stupid movies and battles didn't actually happen like we talked about the battle of hogwarts i'll eventually talk about the battle of bastards from game of thrones and i think uh we'll be talking about starship troopers here pretty shortly also um donate so i can send tom home uh, <laughs> please it's it's gonna start getting dark here and i'm very scared yeah it gets dark at like fucking four o'clock here now and it's miserable <laughs> um but yeah uh thanks for tuning in and you can catch the final episode of this out of control spiraling series next week. I'll be looking forward to it myself. Oh, me too. I'm sick of reading about people getting gassed to death. Oh, come on. It's entertaining in a dark, twisted, depressing kind of way. Uh, it only gets worse. It only gets worse until next. That's that's the, that, that is the podcast slogan. Wait, it only gets worse. <laughs> Wait, there's worse <laughs> until then. Hi, this is Nate Bethay, and I'm the producer of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. This show is brought to you by Audible. And as it just so happens, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys and browse the selection of audio programs. Download his title for free and start listening. Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys to get started.